All right, would you bow in prayer with me, please? Father God, we do give you thanks that we hold your word in our laps, that we can read it together and receive the great words of comfort from it. Thank you for the glad tidings of the gospel message that in the fullness of time you sent forth your son, made of a woman, made under the law, that he might redeem us from all sin and all the curse of the law, and that you did raise him after he paid that awful payment in his death on the cross so that we could can now thank you that we serve a living Savior and that he has ascended to your right hand and taken his seat in the throne of majesty and glory and now makes intercession for his people. We thank you for those truths. Now we ask that you would grant a fresh experience of the assurance of these truths this day in every heart here. Deliver each of us from our fears and our anxieties and help us to cast all our burdens upon thee. Deliver us from the cares of life, things that choke out the word and its work in our hearts. We ask that you would clear our vision in this hour and as we open your word and and give attention to the things that are spirit and life. And may we experience the feeding of our souls and the building up of the new creature in Christ that each of us, I hope, are. Fill me, Father, with your spirit and with your grace that I might exalt your Son in the presence of those who love him. For we do pray in his name. Amen. The afterlife. How many people think about the afterlife? The afterlife is not a non-body experience. It's not even a reincarnation of some type. You know, in another human body, or an animal body, or a reptile, or a bird, or how'd you like to come back as a stone or something? No, that's not what the afterlife is. The Lord's resurrection tells us about the afterlife. It displays for us the nature of the afterlife, and it is going to be one that is lived in the reawakened same body in which you lived here on earth except unlimited by time and space and delivered from all the effects of sin, such as diseases and any kind of harm, mental, social, emotional harm, and the fear of death. Won't that be wonderful? I mean, from the time you're born, you think about, well, not as a baby, but when you, once you get aware of death, that's what you think about. It's coming. The Lord's resurrection assures us that there is victory over our greatest and final enemy, death. But the significance of his resurrection is not just for us, as wonderful as it is for us. It's not just all about us, it's also for him. His bodily resurrection is the great evidence that he is who he claimed to be. When the religious rulers, remember, asked him for a sign to prove his divine authority, And that he was who he claimed to be, what did he give them the sign of? The sign of resurrection. Back in John 2, he said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body. And in three days, I'll raise it back up. And then, of course, he gave them later on the sign of Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale and came out bodily alive, so would the Son of Man spend three days, three nights in the heart of the earth and come out bodily alive. It was an absolutely incredible sign. Wasn't it? I mean, 
That is pretty incredible that somebody would come back from the dead. But it had to be an incredible sign for someone who was claiming to be God. How could anyone otherwise believe, actually believe that someone in the flesh, looking exactly like an ordinary man, was actually eternal God? You have to admit that if we were back in that, those days, that would be awfully hard to swallow, wouldn't it? It looks just like an ordinary Jewish man, and yet he's claiming to be the eternal God. So he had to give an incredible sign. So the people could believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be when he fulfilled that sign, which he did. And when he did, it gave evidence that he had indeed, as he had claimed, come down from heaven. He had taken upon himself flesh. He had taught the words of heaven. He had performed the works of heaven. He fulfilled every single messianic prophecy. He lived among men as the Son of God on earth. He willingly laid down his own life, just as he said he would, as the sacrificial lamb of God for the sins of the world. And as he also said he would, three days later, he raised it back from the dead. So when men had done their worst to him, when they killed him, considering his claims blasphemous, and you almost say, well, why wouldn't they? You know, he was claiming to be God. And so when they killed him for being blasphemous, he then did his greatest. When they did their worst to him, he did his greatest, and he gave assurance that he was indeed God, equal with God, God the Son. And the early Christians became convinced of these claims because of his post-resurrection appearances. Let's see how much you remember from two weeks ago. How many of the four gospel accounts contain post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus? One, two, three, or four? Four. See? Great. Good. Good. You learned. What we found ironic, though, in our study is that none of his own were anticipating his resurrection. He had taught it, and he had taught it plainly. He had predicted it, but they just failed to receive it, didn't they? They didn't get it. So after his death, we find that they're all in gloom and despair. And when he appears, they can hardly believe it for joy, right? It's just too good to be true. But the fact is that their doubt and their despair puts us in a position that we never need to be. You see, they went through all of that really in our place for us. And they came out of it with complete confidence because he gave them, as it says in Acts 1-3. Look at that. Turn to Acts 1-3 for a minute. I, I didn't tell you the truth. I said we'd, we'd be parked in John 20. But just take a peek at this. I want you to see it for yourself. Luke wrote in Acts 1-3 that Jesus gave to them many infallible proofs. More than we have recorded for us in the scripture. They became confident in his bodily resurrection because he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. Being seen of them how many days? Forty days. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, they became absolutely convinced of his bodily resurrection. You think about it, nothing else could have so dramatically changed these people from what they were after his death to what they became when they absolutely turned the world upside down and each of them willing to face persecution and martyrdom for what they believed. 
Well, several lessons back, we discussed how John chapter 20, now you can go over to John 20, how it contains for us four episodes of individuals or groups of individuals and what it took to create faith, their faith in the Lord's bodily resurrection. First, in John chapter 20, uh, John himself gives us his own personal story, his own personal testimony as to what it was that persuaded him that the Lord had actually risen bodily. And what was it that that John saw that caused him to believe in the bodily resurrection? The empty grave clothes, exactly. And then, in John 20, we learned how Mary Magdalene came to believe in the resurrection. The third episode in that chapter concerned, and that's what we looked at last time, was uh, the Lord's first resurrection appearance to his gathered apostles and other disciples. There was only one person, important person, missing that day, and who was it? Thomas. So we learn in the third episode, John 20, how the other apostles and disciples came to be convinced of his bodily resurrection. And then a week later, we have in John 20, the fourth account, and that is what it took to persuade that one missing person, what it took to persuade Thomas of the literal resurrection of Christ. So John 20 presents different states of mind. The pensive and the pensive and devoted John. Now there were two, two other accounts. There was when the Lord appeared to Peter privately, and there was the report of the two on the road to Emmaus. But John doesn't tell us about those. Who did? Luke. Luke was the one who told us about that. So right now we're just focusing on what John gives us to gives to us in John 20, and he presents these different states of mind. First of all, there's the pensive, thoughtful, devoted John. There is the completely overcome with grief Mary Magdalene. There are the dedicated but fearful apostles. What were they fearful of? The Jews. The door is shut when they're gathered in that room uh, because they have fear of the Jews. And then we have the stubbornly unbelieving Thomas. And we are told how each of these different personality types or temperament types. Maybe you can identify with one of those people or a combination of them. But we find out how each of them were brought to absolute, undeniable, rock-solid faith in Christ's bodily resurrection. You know, surrendered faith in Christ involves three realms of our inner beings. Remember that day when we were discussing all the, the threes in, God, in God's creation? And I think, Wanda, you were the one that told me about this one. This was another one. That we consist in our inner beings of our mind, heart, and will. Right? Surrendered faith in Christ involves all three. Mind, heart, and will. Young John, remember he was a teenager probably about this time when the Lord was crucified. He believed in the Lord's resurrection when he saw the evidence of the empty grave clothes. His faith was the logical conclusion of the work of his mind. He looked at those grave clothes and he realized that the only way out of them, you know, they they were left in that still-wrapped yet hollow condition, was for Jesus to have risen right up out of them. Then in Mary Magdalene, we had an example of the heart leading the way to faith. It was her heart that led her to the tomb two times on Sunday morning. And she came to full faith in Christ's bodily resurrection when she heard the voice of her beloved good shepherd calling tenderly her name. 
In the situation with Thomas, which is what we're going to look at this morning, the Lord dealt with the, the realm of a man's will. So he said, you know, John, the mind, Mary, the heart, Thomas, the will. Now, while it is debatable whether or not Thomas's absence from that gathering on Resurrection Sunday evening was excusable or not, and we'll talk about that, there is a second more serious problem that Thomas had, which was definitely not excusable. You see, he willfully, adamantly disbelieved the unanimous testimony of the others that Jesus was indeed alive from the dead. And there were a lot of people in that room. Figure you've got ten other apostles, and you've got the two on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and his companion, and then remember the scripture says there were many Galilean women. We know the names of some of them. Uh, Mary, the wife of uh, somebody or other, can't remember his name. But there was then um, Mary Magdalene. Then there was Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there was Salome, her sister. There was probably Joanna and Susanna. And then a whole lot of other ladies we don't know their names. So there were a lot of people in that upper room who had seen the Lord Jesus when he appeared to them in his fifth resurrection appearance. And they all say the same thing to Thomas, and yet he willfully disbelieves all of them. After hearing them, he, t- he says this, except I shall see in his hands, and this is 2025, by the way, verse 25, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, what? I will not believe. That is given in the double negative in the Greek which means I will not, no, never believe unless I see and touch and thrust. (laughs) See, touch, and thrust for myself. That, you have to admit, that is willful. It's also, when you think about it, it really is kind of self-important because he was saying basically that unless I see him, unless I touch him, I will not believe. I will not trust your combined assessment of what you all saw or what you thought you saw. It's not enough to convince me, Thomas. Kind of self-important, right? This kind of reminded me of Peter's exclusive statement about, remember when Jesus said that when he was smitten, when the shepherd was smitten, all the sheep would scatter and he predicted that they would all scatter. They'd be offended by from of him when he was arrested. And that's exactly what they did. But Peter, oh no, Lord, maybe the rest of these will all do that, but I never will. What was Peter exclusively saying about himself? I'm braver. I'm braver than them. I love you more than they do, so I'll stick by you. And, you know, he was putting himself up above the others. And that's basically, isn't it, essentially what Thomas is doing? He's elevating his ability to discern reality above all the others. Doesn't he obviously think, you know, maybe they're more gullible than he is? Now, he doesn't dispute that they saw something, um, but he probably thinks that they saw a spirit. He definitely does not believe that they saw the material nail-pierced. I mean, that's what he's all about, isn't it? The crucifixion wounds. They did not see the material nail-pierced resurrected person of Christ. He would only trust his own judgment about that. Yet Thomas, like Peter, had placed his faith in Jesus as the 
long-awaited promised Messiah of Israel. He really had looked to him as the promised Messiah. And he had left everything behind in order to follow him for some three and a half years. He was even willing to die with him. We'll talk about that later. He was one of the Lord's genuine sheep. And thus, in the Lord's sixth post-resurrection appearance, which is the first one that did not occur on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus made a special visit to his gathered disciples for the primary sake of convincing Thomas of his bodily resurrection. Is that grace? Yes. So let's look at John 20, verses 24 to 29. It says, but Thomas, notice that, but Thomas, one of the twelve called, here's his nickname, Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. Here we go and again, another but. But he said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, that would be probably the same room, the upper room probably, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Same thing he had said the previous Sunday. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Did you know that such accounts in the scripture as Noah's drunkenness, doesn't that always just kill you? You know, you think about it, preaching for 120 years and building that ark and just all the, <laughs> the wonderful faith of Noah. <laughs> and then after it's all over with, he gets drunk. Oh. But such accounts as his drunkenness and David's adultery with Bathsheba, Peter's denials, and Thomas's disbelief have been used in history by self-elevated church leaders as justification for preventing what they call the common people from reading the scriptures. You know, when this, when the world, when church history went into the dark ages, actually the whole world went into the dark ages, it was because the Bible was kept from the people. Couldn't read it for themselves, and this is one of their justifications for it. They claimed that these kind of bad things written about such important spiritual men would jeopardize people's confidence and in the scripture and consequently harm the faith. But the opposite is really true. If we did not find any flaws of people in people of significance included in the scripture, other than, of course, the Lord Jesus, that would be, if we didn't find any flaws in the people in the scripture, that would be an indication that it was not divinely inspired. If scripture was written by mere men, um, 
men trying to convince others to come to their faith, would they not omit the degrading stories of some of the leaders of the faith? Surely they would have left out Noah's drunkenness and Davis, David's adultery, you know, and, and, and Peter, Peter's denials and Thomas's disbelief. The inclusion of such flaws and such failures and such frailties is exactly what makes the Bible real. <clears throat> and it's what gives additional support for its divine authorship. The reader of scripture is led to understand that those people were just as human as we are. When we study them, we find that out, don't we? Don't put them on a pedestal. They're just as human as you and I. And that they also needed the salvation provided by the only perfect human being who has ever lived, the Lord Jesus, the God-man. We can identify with people of scripture. They're real. Can't you feel Mary's grief outside the tomb? Didn't we identify? You almost want to weep with her. And we can understand Peter's shame. How many of us haven't felt shame in denying the Lord? You know, either sins of omission or commission. Haven't we all felt fear? And haven't we all been slow of heart to understand all that the scriptures would teach us? And we have certainly all likewise experienced Thomas experienced Thomas's skepticism. Now John was inspired to include for us Thomas's nickname. And what was it? Didymus. Now Thomas is Aramaic. Didymus is Greek. And do you know what Didymus in Greek means? The twin, right? You've read ahead or you're already really smart or you've got footnotes in your <laughs> It means the twin. That is why we have the word ditto. You know, I'm going to put one baby in your womb, ditto, another one. <laughs> it is where the word ditto comes from. Didymus means twin. <clears throat> Thomas had a twin. Who his twin was, we are not told. Just as we do not know the identity or even the sex of Cleopas's traveling companion, we talked about that, neither do we know the identity of Thomas's twin. We don't know if his twin was male or female. And I think that this was purposely done so that we could identify. We are open to fit into that role. Just like we could have been Cleopas' traveling companion, we could be Thomas's twin. How many times have we refused to believe truths made clear to us by Scripture or by the witness of other, you know, reliable witnesses? How often have we been too brooding or too melancholy too despairing, too down and out to believe the words of comfort and cheer that are given to us in the scripture or that are brought to us by other godly people. How often have we, like our twin Thomas, insisted that God meet us on our terms? You know, God, if you do this for me, if you answer this prayer, then I'll trust you fully. If you do this for me, I'll serve you and I'll honor you with my glorious presence in church. <laughs> The fact of the matter is that Thomas has twins all over this skeptical world of ours <clears throat> because he could be said to represent the scientific approach to life, which is, I will only believe that which I can test by way of my own senses and by, on the basis of my, the experiments that I devise. You know, scientists and skeptics, 
agnostics, and even atheists. They all believe in something. They all believe, you know, a lot of them believe in themselves, in their own superior minds. But everybody believes in something. Everybody lives by faith or nobody would ever get into a car and turn it on and drive. Nobody would ever sit in a chair. Right now you're displaying faith in sitting in the pew, right? That it doesn't just collapse under you. It's the object of one's faith that makes the difference. Christians put our faith in God and Christ and in his word. Everyone else ultimately puts their faith in some man-made ideas and thoughts or some man-made religion. There are many people, when you think about it, and this world is getting more and more atheistic, sadly. Very secular, but even more atheistic. <clears throat> there are many people who place more confidence in, the, in those who design bridges and those who prepare their food in restaurants than they ever do in God. So no wonder he will condemn them. I mean, you know, there is so much evidence of his existence in this world. Just look around you. The other night I was taking my grandchildren home from church Sunday night, and they were looking at the stars in the sky and the full moon, and they were trying to count the stars. <laughs> They're only six and four. Um, <clears throat> but they were saying, isn't it beautiful? And I said, yeah, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, the leaves as they're changing color, you know, evidence of his creative, intelligent design is everywhere. Um, and it's so undeniable and it's so abundant. Is it any wonder that he condemns unbelief? It's, it's not, the fool is, is not, it's the fool, not the intelligent man who says there is no God. You know, no wonder God calls them fools. There's so many out there who think they're so bright and so intelligent and so elite. And God says, you're fools if you don't believe in me. And it's true. Unfortunately, Thomas, however, has twins that are not only found abundantly out there in the world, they are also found in the flock of the Lord's sheep. Now, Thomas, I told you, was one of the Lord's sheep. How do I know that? Well, remember... When after Judas Iscariot left to go betray the Lord, for the very first time, Jesus looked at his remaining 11 apostles and called them children, his children. Thomas was there. He was one of the Lord's children. Does the Lord have many weak children in his family? Yes. Does the Lord have many slow of heart students in his school? Yes. Does he have many untrained soldiers in his army? Unfortunately, yes. Does he have many wandering sheep in his flock? Again, unfortunately, yes. But the wonderful thing is that he doesn't cast out any of them. They belong to him. He will not cast them out. He calls us by name to pull us out of our despair, as he did Mary. He patiently guides us in our understanding of Scripture, as he did on the Emmaus Road. He has prayed that our faith will fail not when Satan takes us and sifts us like wheat. And when we fail, he restores us, just like he did with Peter. And he is rich in patience, aren't you glad? For bearing our doubts and our obstinate ways, as he did with Thomas. Even though Thomas stubbornly insisted on the world's way of proving things when it came to believing in the resurrection, which is, what is the world's way of believing? 
seeing. Seeing is believing. Thomas actually threw in a few others, like I said before. Seeing, touching, and thrusting is believing. Even though he stubbornly insisted on that, yet the truth of the matter is he loved the Lord. He loved the Lord, and he was absolutely, utterly heartbroken over his death. Now, because John does not explain to us why Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not present in the room with the others on Resurrection Sunday evening when the Lord first appeared to them, you and I are left to speculate about that. Why wasn't he there? Well, there are those who give Thomas the benefit of the doubt. You're supposed to laugh. Thank you. That was a joke. <laughs> when you think of the following words, tell me which apostle you think of, okay? Ready? Impulsive. Loving. Doubting. Poor Thomas. That always goes with his name, doesn't it? <laughs> I date that to be uh, something that came along with my name. Don't I should say, Catherine, what word? No, no. I don't want to know. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. But some do give Thomas the benefit of the doubt, and they come up with excuses for him why he wasn't there. Some say, well, remember I said maybe he was the guard down below to make sure only believers got into the upper room. I was making an excuse for him, wasn't I? Um, some say maybe he took Judas Iscariot's place as the, the treasurer for the group and he was out purchasing some food or something like that. Others say, well, maybe he was sick. Those who defend his absence by way of some legitimate excuse point out the fact, and this is true, that none of the others reprimanded him for not being there. And more importantly, the Lord Jesus himself does not reprimand Thomas for not having been there with the others that first Sunday evening. So that's a good point, okay? However, John's words, if you look at them, verse 24, Thomas, well actually it says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Those words, the way they're worded there, seem to imply that his absence was one of apostolic neglect. Thomas was one of the twelve, and he wasn't there when Jesus came. He wasn't with the others. Now, that interpretation can depend on how you read it. You know, the inflection of my voice and everything, I can make it sound really bad. So that's not, you can't be real firm on that argument. So let me give you what I think is the strongest argument on the side of those who say Thomas did not have a good reason for being away. Think of this. If there was a legitimate reason for Thomas's absence, do you think that the Lord Jesus, who is so gracious and so compassionate and loving, do you think he would have waited a full week to appear to him? Don't you think that if Thomas was doing something legitimate and that's why he wasn't there, that Jesus might have even appeared to him privately later even that night? as he did with Peter, you know, on Resurrection Sunday, um, or maybe even Monday, or Tuesday, or Wednesday. But the Lord waited a whole week. That makes me inclined to think that Thomas should have been there. 
that first Resurrection Sunday evening. Now, I know in verse 26 it says eight days, so you get confused. You think, well, that must have been the next Monday. But the Jews counted time span, time spans by counting the first day and the last day. So they would have counted like Resurrection Sunday, then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So they, they say eight days, but it was actually the next Sunday. We would probably say seven days. It was a week before the Lord appeared to Thomas and he could receive the joy, you know, and the blessing that all the others had already experienced. The most likely reason for Thomas's absence was his melancholic disposition. Remember the study of temperaments? He was a melancholy guy. He was the kind of guy that if he looked at a glass of water and it was half full, he would say what? It was half empty. (laughs) He knew that the Lord had indeed been crucified and buried, and he may have had no desire whatsoever to gather together with a bunch of idle-tailing, cheery-eyed women who were trying to convince, you know, they were happy and they were trying to convince everybody else that they had actually seen the Lord. Now remember, he was likely not present in the upper room Sunday night, the first Sunday night, when Peter came in and told of his private experience. We know that he was not there when the two on the road to Emmaus returned and said that they had seen the Lord resurrected because they were in the middle of speaking, remember? when the Lord suddenly was in the midst of them. So we know Thomas didn't hear about them, and maybe he also didn't hear about Peter, so he just, you know, didn't want to be with all those women trying to convince everybody in what they had seen. However, during that next week, he heard everybody's testimony, didn't he? All of them, Peter and the two on the road to Emmaus and all the other apostles, all the women, and still he refused to believe. Now this is the third time in John's Gospel that Thomas is specifically mentioned. If it wasn't for John, we really wouldn't know anything about Thomas at all. Matthew, Mark, and Luke only give us his name when they're listing the apostles. John is the one who gives us insight into this man's personality, and I think a quick review of those three occasions leaves us with a strong impression that this man tended to focus on the dark side of things. In other words, he was a pessimist. You got it. He was a pessimist, not an optimist. Our first exposure to his personality came when the Lord, back in John chapter 11, informed his men that he would be going to Bethany. Bethany was just two miles outside of Jerusalem. He told them it was because Lazarus had died. It took them a while to understand what he was saying, but he finally said, Lazarus is dead. Okay, they thought he was just sleeping and... Anyway, when it became obvious that the Lord was going to go to Bethany, now remember, right, the last time he had been in Jerusalem, the Jews tried to kill him. So when his men heard he was determined to go back to Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem, they tried to persuade him not to go. They were completely unsuccessful. You know, the Lord was on a mission. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead and... Anyway, Thomas, when he realized the Lord was not going to change his mind, Thomas resigned himself to going with him, even though they would all die. Here's what Thomas said in John 11, 16. Let us also go that we may die with him. Do you know who Thomas reminds me of? How did you know that? You heard yesterday. How many of you have watched the Winnie the Pooh movies? 
You know, I've got eight, seven grandchildren, so I, if you haven't, you need to get them. They are so good. I love Tigger. <laughs> but Thomas reminds me of Eeyore. You know, the blue donkey? Oh, all right. <laughs> if you're going to go, we'll go with you, and we'll all die with you. <laughs> That's exactly it. You can tell I've watched a lot of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> we can admire Thomas's dedication, right? He, he, he was willing, you know, to go with the Lord and even die with the Lord, but his pessimism is obvious. He is what you could call a heroic pessimist. Now, it's, it's much more difficult to be a heroic pessimist than a heroic optimist. Because if you're a heroic, you can be brave if you're optimistic. Okay, Lord, we'll go with you. We've seen you walk right out of the midst of people want to kill you before. And, you know, so we'll go with you and everything will be hunky-dory. It's easy to be a brave optimist. But it's very difficult to be a brave pessimist. Okay, we'll go. We'll all die. Your mission will be a failure. I mean, that's basically what he he's thinking that the Lord's mission is going to be a failure. Because he's going to die. And they're all going to die with him. Next time John tells us about Thomas is on the night of the Lord's arrest. They're all gathered together in the upper room, you know, to celebrate the Passover supper. And the Lord begins his farewell discourse. And he tells them that he is going to be leaving. And they can't follow him yet. Later on, but not yet. But they knew the way. And this is, of course, when Thomas interrupts. And he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Well, if he had been listening carefully to the three verses right before that, Jesus had said he was going to his father's house, and there he would be preparing many dwelling places for them. And he was going to, he promised that he would come back and escort them there. That's John 14, verses 1 to 3. So Thomas's question, you know, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the, the way? not only essentially ignored the Lord's promise, but it tells us that he saw the Lord's departure as the extinction of his hope. Since they didn't know where Jesus was going, and they couldn't follow him there. So again, we have to admire Thomas's love, because he wanted to be with the Lord, where the Lord was going. Right? He wanted to follow him there. But he was very quick to throw up his hands in despair. You're going, and we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. So, from what we learn of this apostle in these other two passages, it would seem that his absence on Resurrection Sunday evening was due to the despair in which he plunged because of the Lord's death. You see, the thing that he most dreaded had happened. He he figured, oh, the Lord's going to die, that's going to be the end of everything, and that's exactly what happened. What he dreaded most had happened. And the bad thing was that he wasn't able to go with him and die with him. So, like so many of us who could be Thomas's twin, he buried his disappointment and despair in private solitude somewhere. Hmm. Let me say something here that probably hits home to a lot of us. If Thomas's grief was the cause of his absence, which I think it, it was. Wasn't it wrong for him to be so self-absorbed in his own pain and despair 
that he neglected the similar pain of the others. Wasn't that kind of selfish? The others were hurting too. If he had, this is in Romans 12:15. If he had been weeping with his friends, he would have also been rejoicing with his friends. Solitude feeds discouragement and despair. But what is our natural tendency when we're grieving and when we're hurting and when we're uh, disappointed or depressed? What do we do? We hide. We go, you know, curl up in our, in our homes, in our little cocoons. Solitude is not good for the Christian. It's not good for anybody, really. But it has a way of turning our discouragement into self-pity. You close yourself up in the house for long enough and pretty soon have a big pity party, right? Nobody cares about me. Nobody's called. Nobody's come to see me. Pastor Head doesn't, hasn't even come to see me. You know, and we, we get a big, big pity party. God doesn't love me anymore. And then that leads to something even worse. Disbelief. Thomas's sorrow for an entire additional week was the product of his own willful unbelief. He didn't need to be sad that whole week. With all the others united in testimony that they had seen the Lord, you would think that Thomas, now think of all that Thomas had seen for the past three years. He'd seen Jesus raise other people from the dead, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son of Nain, as well as perform every other kind of amazing miracle. He was in the boat when the Lord said, Peace be still. You know, he'd seen him cleanse lepers. Everything Thomas had seen. You would think that at least he would say something like this to his fellow apostles and disciples. I want to believe you guys. Oh Lord, help thou my unbelief. But he was very dogmatic about his unbelief, making it crystal clear that he was positively not going to believe unless his empirical conditions were met. He wanted proof that dealt with his physical senses and nothing short of that would convince him. That's why he said, except I see in his hands the print of the nails, put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Double negative. Definitely won't under any circumstances believe. You know, by the way, this is the only place in the New Testament where it speaks of the nails. Remember when Jesus was crucified, it only said... They crucified him. And we talked about how crucifixion was by one of two ways. Sometimes they hung them with ropes on the cross, and sometimes they actually pierced them with the nails. Well, if it wasn't for Thomas and the Lord's words to him and Thomas's words about what it would take with the nail prints, we wouldn't know if the Lord was actually crucified with nails or if he was just tied to the cross. And if he was just tied to the cross with ropes... That would not be a fulfillment of the Psalms where it says they pierced my hands and feet. So, thank you, Thomas, for because of his doubt, a prophecy we know was definitely fulfilled. You see how Lord, the Lord works all these things out? So Thomas, anyway, was laying down his own conditions. He was challenging God to prove himself to him. To ditto. <laughs> now, I know that Thomas, as we said earlier, his name is almost always matched with the word doubting. But his real problem was more than doubt. 
His real problem was unbelief. In verse 27, when Jesus warned Thomas, he said, Be not faithless. That's the Greek word apistos. Pisto is believe. We say, pistevo y sanation. I believe in one God. That's part of our Greek creed. Pistevo means belief. When you put an A in front of a word like amoral or atheist, atheist, what does it mean? Without. No. No faith. Jesus says, don't be without faith, with no faith, Thomas. That was his real problem, was disbelief. He was presumptuously dictating to God what it would take for him to have faith in Jesus' resurrection. Isn't that pride? Isn't it pride that presumes the right to determine the terms of faith? When you say to somebody that the scripture says, except a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God, and people go, when you say, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me, and people say, well, that's intolerant. Isn't it God's prerogative to set the terms of faith, to tell us what the conditions for faith are? And that's what he's done. In spite of the fact that God had provided a great deal of evidence for Thomas. I mean, he had the Old Testament scriptures. He had Christ's own many predictions that he would rise on the third day. He had the proof of the empty tomb. He had the proof of the empty grave clothes. And he had abundant witnesses, didn't he? Many witnesses. And by the way, when it says the other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord, that word said is given in the continuous tense. They kept on telling him for eight days everything that they had seen and what the Lord had done. I'm sure the two Emmaus travelers told him all the teaching he had given. And yet, over and over again he heard it, and yet he still did not believe. Now contrast this, what we're hearing about Thomas, contrast this with the first person in the gospel accounts who believed the Lord would rise from the dead. Even though this person had never had the privilege of traveling with the Lord for three years and hearing his sermons, think of how many sermons Thomas heard. Probably every one of them. This person had never heard the Lord's numerous predictions about his own third day rising from the dead. This person had likely never even seen one of the Lord's many miracles. In fact, this individual may never have even laid eyes on Jesus before uh, a few hours before he believed on him. So what's the question? Who is this person? What's, who, who wants to take a guess at the identity of this person? The first one to believe that the Lord would indeed live again in the gospel accounts. Who was it? Very good. The thief on the cross. Remember when he said, Lord... Now, what was the Lord doing when the thief said that? He was hanging on the cross, going to die, okay? And the thief knew it. He's going to die. There's not going to be any escape. He's going to die. But he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew his death wouldn't be the end of it. He would rise and have a kingdom. Well, contrast that lack of privilege and lack of preparation that the thief had with the Apostle Thomas, who had years of privilege and preparation. When the thief believed, that was amazing, wasn't it? That was amazing. 
and completely unexpected because he had just been with the other thief cursing the Lord. So it was completely unexpected. But when Thomas did not believe, that really should even be more amazing and more unexpected. However, the good news for Thomas is that even though he was of such a despondent nature that he could only focus on a dead Savior, that's what he's doing when he's talking about the nail prints and the side and everything, he's focusing on a dead Savior, and even though his gloomy outlook blocked his faith so that he could not imagine anyone ever rising, raising themselves from the dead, which is pretty amazing, <laughs> and although he presumed upon God by laying down his own conditions for faith, and he thought that his own opinion was higher than the combined testimony of all the others. Yet, in spite of all that, the Lord Jesus returned again to his men at a time when he knew Thomas would be with them. That is grace. And here is something that speaks positively of Thomas. He kept company with the believers. That's good. That's good. Because in 1 John 2.19, it tells us, how sometimes do you know a tear from wheat? Well, 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us because they were not of us. When Judas Iscariot left, he left, right? Proved that he was not of them. He took his own life. What about Peter? After he denied the Lord. He was back in fellowship with the believers, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Here's Thomas. I mean, the other, utter happiness of all the others must have been like salt on his own self-inflicted wound, but he stays with them. He'd rather be with them than anybody else. And he doesn't withdraw, even though he doesn't share their happiness and their joy and their gladness. He still wants to be with them. Because he's a true sheep. It kind of reminded me of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. You know, Saul became Paul, right? I believe that like Saul, Paul, Thomas was under conviction all that week. And I think Thomas all week long was kicking against the pricks of his own conscience. And thankfully, think of this, the others didn't exclude Thomas. Well, you won't believe us. Get out of here. Just like they didn't exclude Peter, did they? That speaks highly of them. That's good. When somebody falls and they're part of us, the body of Christ, what are we to do? Embrace them. Take them back. Forgive them. Um, especially, when, of course, when they're repentant. The others didn't exclude Thomas, even though his presence must have been like a dark shadow. An eon. <laughs> They, they surely could recall how each and every one of them also did not believe the verbal reports when they had first received them, did they? Did they believe the women? No. They didn't believe the two on the road to Emmaus either. Some of them didn't. You know, the ones who hadn't seen the Lord themselves. And even when Jesus was in their midst, they still didn't believe it. They thought he was a spirit. So, then, in verses 26 to 29, we have the account of the dramatic end of Didymus' disbelief. It was the next Sunday. They were again all gathered, likely in the same room. The door is still shut, although notice there's no mention of fear of the Jews this time. The door is shut, but no mention of fear. Something else that's different 
is that Thomas is now with them. And suddenly, just like the week before, suddenly, all you know, without the door opening, without a window opening, without a punch out in the wall, there's Jesus in the midst of them. And what does he say again? Because they needed it. I mean, these guys had to be strong. You know, it's a good thing the disciples were young or they would have all had heart attacks. <laughs> there's Jesus and he says, peace be unto you. And then I can imagine his eyes just focused right on Thomas. He singles out Thomas and he says, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. I'm sure he had his hands outstretched when he said that. And reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. He gives him an invitation and then he gives him a command. Be not faithless, but believing. What is amazing and what must have dawned on Thomas just instantly is that the Lord's invitation to him was in the exact terms that he had adamantly declared he must have in order to believe. Jesus quotes Thomas almost verbatim, doesn't he? And in that flashing moment, Thomas realizes that Jesus, standing before him with his crucifixion wounds exposed, is not only very much alive in the flesh, but it also means that he is omnipotent God. All-powerful God. Because the only one who could raise himself from the dead would be God himself. And he knew Thomas's demands, which means he's also omniscient. How did he know what I said? And he's omnipresent. He must have been there. We couldn't see him, but he must have been there, and he knew. So he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, and he's omnipresent. In a second of time, Thomas fully realized who he was in the presence of, and how dull-witted and willfully prideful it had been for him to demand the basis type of evidence, sensory evidence, and how amazingly patient and compassionate and loving it was for the Lord Jesus, omnipotent God, to condescend to Thomas's level by, you know, for his sake by saying, go ahead, see me, touch me, thrust. <clears throat> be not faithless, but believing. The Lord's expression, be not faithless, can be re- rendered become not faithless. You see, there was a dangerous process that was going on in Thomas's heart because of his will. And it had climaxed in his I will not believe except statement. And the Lord wanted to put a stop to that before it could go any further. <clears throat> so he stooped down to Thomas's level in order to strengthen his wavering faith and get him back on track. Has he ever done that for you? He's done it for me, and I'm so glad. Thomas was on the brink of a decision. I'm sure all this happened in just a matter of you know seconds, but he had to decide right then and there. And every eye in the room must have been riveted on Thomas to see what he would do. Would he, would he put forth his fingers to actually touch the wounds of the Lord's hands? Would he actually insist on thrusting his whole hand into the Lord's side to make sure he wasn't a spirit? Would he tell Jesus or ask Jesus to eat something? I heard you ate with the others. Would you please eat something and prove it to me? 
Well, as you know, he did none of the above, did he? I think he probably fell on his face in front of him. He was so absolutely convinced in the bodily resurrection from the dead of the man he had believed to be Israel's Messiah that he had no need to touch him. In fact, Thomas, who had descended so deeply into the valley of despondency, now proved himself to be an expert mountain climber. You see, he went farther than any other man had ever gone. He suddenly went to the top of the class because he simply but profoundly declared, My Lord and my God. And he wasn't saying, Oh my God like a lot of people flippantly say today, a Jews never spoke the name of God without reverence. My Lord and my God. Thomas has the honor of being the first person to declare the post-resurrection deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. You talk about grace. He is also the only one in all four gospel accounts who openly confessed Jesus as my God. You see, where where grace, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Here is a man, think about this, here is a man who is in the presence of at least ten other people. Now, on the second Sunday, we don't know if all the disciples were there, the women and all the rest of them, Cleopas. But we do know the other apostles were there. So he's at least in the presence of ten other men, and he looks right into the face of Jesus, and he calls him his God. And Jesus lets him do it. Jesus doesn't say, Oh, no, Thomas, don't say that. He accepts those identifications because he is Lord and he is God. And he responds with the comment, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Believed what? Believed in the sign of Jonah. The sign of the resurrection, bodily resurrection. The sign that Jesus gave to prove that he truly is God. You see, Thomas got it. When he saw the Lord bodily in front of him, he got it. That's the sign you gave. You said that you would rise from the dead if you truly were God. You're God. You're alive from the dead. Thomas believed that Jesus was the Son of God that he had claimed to be. But then the Lord's comment takes a turn. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. He, he now gives a beatitude, and who is it for? It's for us. It's for you and I. Aren't you glad that you know the church wouldn't exist, exist if we all had to be like the apostles and Thomas at the beginning, right? If we said, well, I won't believe unless I see. Where would the, you know, when the apostles and the disciples that saw him all died out, that would be the end, right? If we all had to have faith like Thomas. We've had to believe the witnesses. These guys went through the despair and the doubt so that we don't have to. But he gives a beatitude for us. And here it is. 
Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. There is greater divine blessing for those who have not yet seen the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Not yet. We will one day. But we haven't yet seen him. But in the meantime, how do we walk? We walk by faith, not by sight. And that kind of faith pleases God. The Beatitude blessings are all about God being pleased. And when God is pleased with us, he smiles down upon us, and that is our blessing, that we have pleased God. You see, he is more honored by faith that accepts him without sight, but on the basis of his word alone. You see, he has exalted his word even above his own name. So when someone believes him based on his word alone, that pleases him. Faith based on the word of God is the faith that Christ pronounces as blessed. Now in verse 30, very quickly, John states that there were many other things that Jesus did besides those that are recorded in the gospel account that he wrote. You know, it says sometimes that Jesus went into a town and he would he would deliver all the de- demons of all the people. He would heal all the people. Are every one of those miracles recorded for us? Is every word he ever spoke recorded for us? No, 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 no. Many other things. And as a matter of fact, he said the world couldn't contain the volumes if he wrote everything the Lord did. But the ones that John was inspired to include in his gospel account were for the direct purpose that we might believe. Let me read those two verses, 30 and 31. Um, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now here's the only time a gospel writer directly addresses you and I, the reader. It's the only time, verse 31. But these are written that ye might believe. John is talking to us. These things that he wrote in his gospel account are so that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. This is vital because until we believe that, we are merely dying, decaying mortals. The gospel of John was written, and remember his emphasis was the deity of Christ. He wrote his gospel so that you and I might believe in the only Savior that God has promised, uh, has appointed, and he gives proof that he is the Savior from death by conquering it himself. The Bible says that you must believe this. You must receive this by faith. And if you do, what do you receive? Everlasting life. People pride themselves all the time in this day and age are not believing anything unless they can see it for themselves. Men think they are so clever for all their arguments against believing, right? But God is not going to give any awards for the clever excuses of those who champion unbelief. He's going to condemn every single argument. He's going to condemn every joke against him and his son and his word and every excuse Because without faith, it is impossible to please him. Those who insist on disbelieving God and his word, guess what? 
they're going to have their way. If they insist on disbelieving God in his word, they will spend eternity without God and his word. And that is a horrible thought. Because God is light, God is love, God is hope, God is holiness to live forever without all that God is and without his word. Would you bow in prayer? Father, we call out over you today in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus, to do in our hearts what we cannot do apart from you. There are probably women in this room in the position of Thomas, and you have graciously allowed them to hear your word. You have orchestrated and planned this passage of Scripture specifically for them this day. So we pray that it would go forth in the full conviction of your spirit and not return void, but that it will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. May we each have full confidence, no doubt, full confidence that Jesus is your eternal Son and the only Savior who will ever be offered to free us from the bondage to sin and death. My heart's prayer, Father, is that no one here would go into eternity without him. We pray in his name. Amen.